The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans we're discussing before listening to the podcast. New episodes air Wednesdays at 10 p.m. on FX. In a weird way, I always feel like oh, we're in show business, but you should never be showing what you're doing. You should be doing what you're doing. You know, if you're showing what you're doing, then there's already a level of falseness that you're trying to avoid. No, no one's showing what they're doing in life unless they're a show-off, and no one really wants to watch a show-off. Hello and welcome to Slate's TV Club Insider Podcast for Season 4 of The Americans, where today we'll be discussing Episode 5, Clark's Place. I'm June Thomas, a writer and editor at Slate, and I'm the host of this podcast, which takes you behind the scenes of the show. I've returned once again to, golly gosh, it's raining outside, Gowanus, Brooklyn, where the show is made, where I'm joined by our special guest, who is the director of this episode, and also one of the stars of the show, Noah Emmerich, a.k.a. Stan Beeman. Hello, Noah. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Also with us is Joe Weisberg, the creator of the show. Hello, Joe. Hi, June. And his co-showrunner and co-executive producer, Joel Fields. Hello, Joel. How are you today? I'm jolly good. I've got some questions first for Mr. Noah Emmerich. This was your second episode as a director. Yeah. Was it easier second time around? In some ways it was. In other ways, uh, it wasn't actually. It, you know... It was a very different episode this season than last season, tonally, sort of texturally, it felt. Can you remind us what what happened in the your last season episode? Last season episode had quite a bit of, actually, I don't really remember what happened last season. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> um, it, was a, it was the big uh, sort of South African abduction oh, plot. Uh, yes. Did you have the necklacing? No, uh, that was but, the next episode okay. after mine. But still. Mercifully, because I don't know how I would have handled that. Uh, <laughs> I could barely watch it. Um, so I, I thought I'd have sort of some more confidence and wind in my wings coming into this as a second time director, although, and it did end up that way. I think for sure I was more comfortable more quickly, but the beginning of it was, was uh, I was as nervous and anxious as I was last year. But there's, um, directorially, there's something a little deceptive about this episode, because you look at it the first time and you think, well, this is really a more intimate, quiet, personal story, but then you start breaking it down and there's a almost symphonic sequence at the end of the first act where uh, Hans maybe right. catches surveillance and Clark's going one place and Martha's going another place. And when you sit and just stack up the number of shots it took to build that sequence, there was a lot to yeah. put together. It's like Chris Long said, our, our executive producer director this year, uh, he said, you know, there's, there's, there's before and after. Once you read the script, you're a prisoner. Like, it's all you'll think about, and you'll be under that pressure. He goes, so just wait. Maybe you want to wait a day before you read it, because once you read it, and he was completely, it's completely true, once you read it, it you're, you're a prisoner. So that anxiety long? engine starts, and, and it doesn't stop until, you, until you know, basically today. <laughs> until the, the podcast. Anxiety the podcast. Engine, boy. That's the flag. <laughs> this might be the dumbest question ever, but... You learn your lines, right? I mean, actors learn the... No, I am Stan Beeman. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you go on there... Because I think, like, well, sometimes, like, I see this... It's not like it's a ton. Like, can you just keep that in your head and and just kind of keep it in your head from, from, you know... Obviously, you've read it, you know what it's all about, you've prepared. But do those lines 
every night do you go home and learn those lines for tomorrow? Um, it's a funny thing. It's not a dumb question at all because it is a really odd process how we absorb the lines. And everyone has a different approach. Um, my favorite, you know, and I have my different approaches myself just depending upon the pressure and the context and the scene and the work. But my favorite thing to do is actually never to learn lines. And I sort of jokingly said I am Stan Beeman, but I mean, that's hopefully the experience. The experience is you read the script and you really, what you learn, what you discover are the actions your character is taking. So I'm going to go try and reconcile with Sandra. That's the scene. And the words serve the intention and the actions of the character. So they, so you read them and they're usually pretty great and they service that intention very well. And that's how you actually discover the intention through the words. And then you hold on to the action and when you need them, the words are what come back up for you to be able to act upon whoever it is you're acting upon. So in a funny way, instead of sort of memorizing words, mm. it's much more delicate and gentle and satisfying for me to be, if I have the time to really learn the intention of the character and then the words sort of somehow magically show up. And you feel like you're the author of the words uh -huh. in a way, as opposed to memorizing. You don't you don't want to have the experience of memorizing somebody else's words. Yeah. Just as we do in life. I'm speaking to you now. I haven't prepared what I'm going to say, but the words service my my intention. Mm -hmm. So if you can recreate that experience, uh, you know, in character, then it, that's the sort of ultimate ambition I feel. Although, of course, that's not always the opportunity or the case. You have time. Sometimes you do have to sort of memorize. And then the question is, how do you unwind the memorizing feeling and turn it into an organic sense of authorship uh, of your own self? And that's, that creates actually more work in a way. If you memorize, you have to sort of go back and sort of integrate that into your own sense of truth. Yeah, I imagine it's much more challenging on something like CSI where you're just like spouting science. Yeah, then it's really hard. I mean, then you're just learning words yeah. because it's just procedural garbledygook in a way and you don't really know what you're even saying. I don't mean the, yeah, you know, right. the, the, uh, certain characters, certainly, you know, there's just so much techni techno jargon yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. uh, that you have to learn that or become a, an actual CSI technician <laughs> so that those words feel authentic. Which is another thing <laughs> you, know, you can do in which the break. Is, <laughs> some people do that. Actors do that, you know. Take I mean, an they online go, course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... That's all very fascinating, actually. That, well, I have to say yeah, that right? was fascinating. That was I didn't know any of that. I'm so sorry for any bad dialogue we've ever gotten. You're giving me, I feel so bad now after what you just said. I wanted to take credit for having written the speech you just gave and say he was very convincing. <laughs> very oh, yeah. convincing. Oh, yeah, that was so Joel wrote that. <laughs> Bravo. Yeah. Now, I haven't seen your I haven't seen the episode we're talking about yet, but I've read the script. That's right. That serves me well. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I noticed that when I was reading it, I was all revved up because there was something that is uh, a little bit of a signature of the Americans, um, a big song, a song from the period. Now, in the script, it was a Dire Straits song. Right. And so I'm wondering, first of all, how you kind of respond to those musical cues that are presented to you, because you're the director, but also like how you, so let's talk about that. What, what, what did right. you think when you saw that particular song? Um, I thought, first, I love the band. I don't know that song. 
So I listened to it. Of course, I looked it up and listened to it. And I thought, oh, this is a good song. But, you know, I never take anything too literally. It always feels like a suggestion to me. So here comes a song. This is a moment for a song. We want a montage. Here's a song that I, the writer, thought of and would be good. But it never feels like it's sort of set in stone. Those are always sort of a suggestion. There's a lot of interpretation available. There's a lot of, po obviously, when you're speaking of songs, there's a huge library to select from. Uh, so I never thought this has to be cut to this song. It's, a, it's more of an intention and a... And a, and a, and a uh, a vibe that is suggesting. Um, so I never thought, oh, this is going to be the Dire Straits sequence. Yeah. Um, Which it obviously isn't, since all of <laughs> yes. you just watched the episode yes. and did not hear Dire Straits. <laughs> right. you, heard, um, you heard something else. Yeah, and it turns out to be, you know, I, I had struggled with this song. I, you know, last year I had a really big Fleetwood Mac song, which I was ah, really yes. excited about. But that was a journey to get to that song. Journey to get to that song. It started out as a Rolling Stones song in my head. Uh, this time... I didn't actually know what song it was going to be at all when we were sh shooting. I knew it was going to be something, but I didn't know what. I didn't have a rhythm in my mind. I mean, I had a rhythm of the sort of film of, of the scene, but but not of the music. And I was in the room with the editor, and we were and sh and, and she had put in this temp song, which I actually liked quite a bit, but it didn't feel like a hundred percent. And we started going through the bin. There's a huge bin of sort of songs that are possible, that are rights maybe available, maybe not, but sort of cleared. Or our, our, our music supervisor has sort of blessed and saying these are good songs for the period. They're all period appropriate. They're all right. And we just were listening for a while. And one song came on and I thought just immediately, wow, that's the song. You can say what it is. I can. And it was two days, sadly. It was, it, it's David Bowie. Uh, it was right before he passed Two away. days before he died, we put this song in. Uh, uh, it's David Bowie and Queen under pressure. This is ourselves under pressure. Under pressure. Pressure. And it really, I just, I'm totally in love with it. As I was before this show, but it fits our picture and this story and maybe the theme of the whole show in many ways so beautifully. It just went bananas over. And then you get incredibly terrified that you're not going to be able to get it, that, <laughs> that these guys aren't going to like it, that it's going to be too expensive. There's a million things that yeah, can yeah, go yeah. wrong. And it's such a subjective, you know, as it all is, I guess. But music is particularly how it resonates is so individual. But, you know, but, I think we heard that. And I can't think of anything since the pilot that we heard on a first hearing and thought that fits the picture so perfectly better than anything. It just People, we lit up, and so has everyone who's heard it since, all the people at the studio and the mm -hmm. network. There's just something kind of magic that doesn't happen a lot. So and we, heard, we heard it in the director's cut, and we loved it. We knew we had to have it. And I actually remembered and found in my emails that uh, P.J. Bloom, our, our uh, music supervisor, is responsible for making all these song deals and getting the songs for us. He had sent us an email, uh, I don't know, eight months or a year ago, saying... Uh, David Bowie's a real fan of the show, so you could definitely use one of his songs. Whoa. That would be awesome. And we just, oh, this is so great. We're finally going to get to use it. And then two days later, yeah. we got the news that he had passed away, and it sadly turned into a tribute. Yeah. Um, but it it just couldn't be more right. It's uh, on its own a phenomenal song, and in this part of the show, it just so elevates the it's, stuff. Yeah, we're, I, I get to look really good riding on David Bowie's <laughs> wings. Dude, you picked uh, it. Um, which bit of this episode was the most fun? Gosh, that's that's hard. They're all your babies. 
They really are. I mean, I was most intimidated by this long sort of surveillance pursuit sequence between Stan and Adderholt and Martha and Clark and Hans. And there's sort of a lot of moving parts and and to make it... uh, Makes sense for the audience with a lot with very, with a, with no dialogue is a great visual fun challenge uh, and I had a great time doing that figuring it out a lot of that was before you get on set of course you figure out your shots um, but what? the other but the scenes with the you know the what I enjoy most is sort of working with the actors mm. and these intimate scenes and, and playing with the subtlety of the dynamics between Philip and Elizabeth uh, and Martha and Clark had some great scenes uh, in this episode. Well, well, since you mentioned intimate scenes, the the last scene is a big sex scene. And I know that you're a professional actor and a grown-up adult man, but like, how do you avoid that being like awkward or embarrassing? It was terrifying. (laughs) That was terrifying. I really didn't want to, I didn't, I didn't, I, I, I I was uncomfortable. Uh, And then it ended up being a great time. You know, (laughs) so much of someone you're uncomfortable with something is a nice thing to lean into and see what happens. Uh, is it more uncomfortable acting in a sex scene or directing a sex scene? I think more uncomfortable directing, actually, which surprised me. Because I feel responsible for making them yeah. do these things that I know from the other side of the camera is also uncomfortable in its own right. But to be sort of, to be the person who tells them to stop or start or I need more or can you do it again? Like, I felt so guilty each time I had to say, I just... Oh, just one more time, guys. If we could just, <laughs> and if you could move your leg just like three inches that way, and then I'm sorry, could you cover that breast? Great. Like, it's really uncomfortable. Well, if you were, I mean, I think that's, I'm, I know you're going to be too modest to want to answer this question, but I think that's a brilliant sex scene. I think it's so, I've seen so few sex scenes that I think are authentic and feel real. Sex scenes usually on television movies feel fake, and that one feels both real and very sexual. So if you were going to, this is what you won't want to do, but if you were forced to, Point of at a gunpoint to give another director advice. How do you make a sex scene feel real? What would you say you did? And Stan, oh Stan, Jesus, it's okay. He loves that. <laughs> Believe me, you just made him very happy. <laughs> Hands against the wall. <laughs> and Noah, um, again, having seen the script, all I saw was the line, "Philip and Elizabeth fuck hard." So, how did you take that one line and? turn that into actions, beautiful right, actions. Right, right. Uh, it's hard. I mean, first thing you do is talk to these guys about what they want the tone and quality of that scene to be because it's obviously pretty ob- uh, obtuse. It, Philip Elizabeth Fuck Hard is the, direct, is, is the script and that could be a million different things. Um, so then we have a conversation and talk about what the tone of that scene is, what they want it to be. Um, and then you go invent sort of in your mind some sense of uh, how, the, how to visualize that, how to convey that visually and emotionally. And then, really importantly, speaking with the actors about where they are, what the scene's about. So it's not a sex scene. It's, I mean, it, it is a sex scene, but it's really about something else. Mm. Um, particularly the way it's written and placed in this episode. It's really about where they are in their relationship and what is the purpose of that sex? What are they doing via that action to each other and for themselves? And that's the way into sort of avoiding, you know, I think the mistake 
that I even maybe made in the very, when I first read it, I was like, okay, wow, cool, a sex scene. How am I going to shoot? What's going to be new? What's going to be interesting? How is that going to look? And it's like, that's the wrong question. That's the cart before the horse. The question is, what, why is this happening? Why are they fucking hard now? What's it about for him? What's it about for her? Why does she, she actually instigates the, you know, the, the physicality? Like, why is she doing this? What's going on? And then it turns into being about the entire story that we've just seen. It turns, you know, we're there naturally. And then, you know, that's first and foremost. And then how to visualize that becomes a different question. As opposed to how do I make a cool, sexy sex shot? It's like, how do I show this? And then it's just sort of, it's just sort of like, it's the same thing. It's about organic step-by-step step unfolding. The same way we're talking about the lines, you know, you don't want to learn the lines and then squeeze them in. You want to have them be there because you need them to do the action that you're trying to do. Same thing with the sex. You want the sex to be there because you want Philip to be doing something or Elizabeth to be reaching out to Philip in some particular way. I think that that's so beautifully put and it, it really, it answers the question, how do you do it and, and get it to be real and sexy because it becomes about the character story. Right. And, you know, to me, what's so powerful about what you shot there and what they, they were able to capture in their performances was it wasn't a sexy scene for the purpose of being sexy. It had these deep underlying emotional needs to it his his need to try to get his mind off of what was going on with martha and more importantly her need to try to get her husband's mind off of his other wife and it's so it's so aching and powerful and real that the sexiness becomes the expression of that not it's not just some desire to do a sex right. well it makes exactly. me think too of what you say about acting in general, which I'll paraphrase badly, but what you say is, I don't have to make facial expressions. I have to be there and let the audience bring what right. they think or know that I'm feeling. So that's, in a sense, the same thing. Right. Let them have the sex scene, but then the audience will understand the context of what they're feeling and bring that to it. Right, right. You don't have to, you know, you, in, a, in a weird way, I always feel like oh, we're in show business, but you should never be showing what you're doing. You should be doing what you're doing. You know, if you're showing what you're doing, then there's already a level of falseness that you're trying to avoid. No, no one's showing what they're doing in life unless they're a show-off and no one really wants to watch a show-off. They want to watch something authentic. <laughs> it's funny, we just cut, we just cut uh, four lines from the finale this morning uh, that ultimately, like, were pretty okay lines and they were true lines, but they wouldn't have been truly said in the moments in which they were written. Huh. And we kept trying to rewrite the scene and reconceive the scene so that we could have these lines in. And finally, what we realized is, you know, those lines are just not going to live in this episode. And the audience is going to catch up with that emotional part of the story and that, that story part of the story, or they won't. But it'd be better for them to be a little bit behind the story than it is to have four lines that stick out as untrue. Um, I have a few questions about Stan, if I, if I could sure, speak to Stan Sure, I know now. him pretty well. No. Um, so Ollig, but not as well as these guys. <laughs> I Maybe. I wonder. <laughs> yeah. um, Oleg and Stan have one of their car scenes in this episode. Mm. And I know that that started as, in a way, agents, two agents playing each other, in a way, like trying to get one over on each other. It felt that way. But at this point, it almost feels like that's one of the, like, finally, I can just have a conversation with somebody who gets me. Right. Like, is that how you see it? How do you see Oleg and Stan's relationship at this point? It's definitely evolved 
and gotten more complex and difficult to sort of the decipher than just the original sort of dynamic of them playing each other. I think there, I mean, this episode, there's a real sharing of loss. Mm-hmm. And that is authentic and real and I think creates some kind of connection that's outside the parameters of their past relationship. Although I don't think either one of them necessarily ever loses the veneer of possibly taking some advantage or use of the other mm-hmm. to, 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 to further their own ambition, whatever that means. But I think there is ever-growing, increasing, authentic, empathetic connection between these two characters. Uh, that's 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 been born by the 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 difficulties of life and the in the lives that they're living and the sharedness of that. It's like a, the same reason I felt Stan had a real connection with Nina. In a weird way, was the the understanding that's only available to members of this club. Right, and they're kind of they have a double club here because they're both. You know, agents who have to keep things going in their heads, but they also are people who love Nina. Yeah. So it's like club, club, club. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At the rock bottom of it, there's just a humanity to. There's a human beingness to these two people that are shared, and it's a very particular context and a very particular ad- adversity that they're, and that even though they're on opposite sides of the war, it, it's the same experience. And they, and they are still like you. You also have this sense of like it's almost a game of chicken between them. You know who's going to be the one to crack, and and it's not going to be. Stan, it's not going to be Stan. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> we you know, hear you. We hear you. Huh? It's funny. I didn't. I don't think I realized it until this moment. But there's something I like about seeing these two men together from opposing sides at this point, where nobody's being a tough guy anymore. You know, you're so used to seeing right. two. I mean, there's these two big guys, mm-hmm. but you know, usually in our culture somebody's being tough or both guys are being tough and we're sort of through with that at this point and it's 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 like refreshing i'm like relieved to see them sitting next to each other in a car uncertain unclear where their hearts are out or not but mm-hmm. just nobody fronting in a way very much yeah in fact we had that conversation costa who plays oleg and i had a scene the other night which is a further progression of this mm-hmm. dynamic and, you know, we sort of shared like, wow, look at where we've come from where we started. That's first for our first scenes together. Right. How different. And that was such rooster posturing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's so different now. And it's true. They're two big guys in suits. You're like, mm, that's not who they are. That's what, they, <laughs> that's what you see at first, but they're, yeah. that's not what they are. Well, another odd relationship that stands in is with Henry. Mm, don't with- touch that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I mean, it is, a, it's, it's a, Unusual because it, it there's nothing dirty about. It. I mean, it's a, it's a very oh, no. sort of pure yeah. pure relationship, but it's also difficult to understand because it seems like Stan and Henry are closer than Stan and Philip, and also closer than Stan and Matthew. Right. And why do you think they have such a? a you know, Uncle Stan is less complicated <laughs> than Dad. You know, I think there's a. For both Stan and for, for, for you know the nephew and the uncle are, are it's, it's a cleaner, easier dynamic than the than the father son dynamic. And both Stan and Henry have difficult father son dynamics for different reasons. Um, and this is just sort of a ch- I think it's sort of almost like a second chance. 
to have a connection with a young adolescent boy that clearly Stan wasn't there for with Matthew. Right. And that clearly Philip wasn't there for with, is not there for with Henry. So there's some perfectly symbiotic sort of opportunity that arises in this proximity of these two characters that allows them to sort of Stan, I think, can be a better father in this moment to Henry than he was to his own son. And, and Henry can have a, 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 a more certainly American, stable <laughs> uh, father figure than Philip was able to be for him at this point. Uh, and for the same reason, you know, it's funny. Philip, I've always thought that Philip and Stan are sort of two sides of the same coin to some, uh-huh. in some way in terms of the, the cost that their professional lives have, have manifested personally for Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Uh, Stan was away yeah. undercover for these years when Matthew was that age, and 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 Philip is sort of away now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I feel like you know people have funny reactions to that sometimes, but I think it makes a lot of sense to me. I think also uh, people do have funny reactions to comment on it all the time. I think those relationships are very common. Mm-hmm. I know I had them. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people do. And I think for the exact exact reason you're saying, the issues are mostly off the table. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'll add something else. In look, since Sandra and has gone and Matthew's effectively gone, Stan's become a member of the family. And in this curious family of five, these are the only two who don't really know what's going on. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> So they can be blissfully buddies. We're in the back now. seat eating yeah. cotton candy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Playing board games. And yeah. I spy. <laughs> what? Why are you stopping here? <laughs> That's stratomatic, man. It's it's an intense game, you know. Stratomatic. Yeah. Um Stan has changed so much since we first met him. You've been talking a little bit about his time undercover. I mean, that was very fresh right. when we first met him four years ago. It seemed like he was still really messed up by that. But he was also really a gung ho g-man and now it seems like i mean he's still really dedicated you still meet him with oleg after hours and all of that but we know from that conversation with tori earlier in the season that like it seems like something that some connection has been lost he doesn't seem quite so committed as he once was in some way something's changed i'm not quite sure what it is right. i wonder how you see stan's relationship to his job these days Hmm. I don't necessarily think he's less gung-ho about his commitment to his service. Mm-hmm. I think he's been frustrated by the realities of counterintelligence work and the bureaucracy of the Bureau and the limitations and the frustrations of the job uh, of dealing with diplomatic immunity, of dealing with walls and within walls, of dealing with the bureaucracy and the, and the limitations of his own sort of field work. Um, I think he's been weathered and worn down by some of those uh, obstacles, but I don't think his commitment or, or, or you know, one could say passion for service has been diminished. He's a little tired. Mm. He's, a, he's a little beaten down. He's had a lot of loss, but I think he is ev- as resolved as ever, if not somewhat frustrated, but but hopeful to 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 find. To, to do his job, to execute his job well, and to, to, and, to, and to make the country safer. Jays, we had a scene from the real world in this episode where President Reagan was giving his Star Wars speech, his missile defense speech, and the three members, I think, of the Jennings family were watching him, maybe Stan yeah, too. Yeah, three. Three and no, a half. just oh, three. Three and a half. Three. <laughs> 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 You know, um, Henry was sort of on the computer. Yeah, playing Gorp. Yeah. Um, 
No, it isn't ultra rare for the Americans to incorporate, you know, historical events, but it's always significant, as is everything. But you always feel like those, when you see something from the real world, it's, it's extra significant. So why did we see that scene? Well, first, let's talk in general about it, what you're saying, that we're just very careful about it because it's so easy to drop those things in as historical place markers yeah. and say, look, here we are in our period. And especially if you're doing it with an actually famous speech like that, it can just reek to the high heavens of look at our look at our show taking place in, <laughs> in the 80s with Ronald Reagan. And so the trick is, you know, to have it, it's almost crazily enough, like what Noah was saying about the sex scene, it's to mm-hmm. have it revolve around character. And, uh, so to ha- this is the scene where Elizabeth walks in, right? Yeah. So, so to have it really, really, re- yeah, yeah. right. So to have it really not about Reagan and Star Wars, but to have it about her, her ongoing arc from from the beginning, and it will be to the end. I don't know where she'll be at the end, but this, the arc will be to the end. To have it be where she's coming home and her react. We've we've been watching her reactions to the Reagan and tracking her feelings about this from the beginning of of the series, but that was a reaction you've never seen. You've never seen her make kind of a joke in front of the family and have it be welling up from the depths of her soul, but she's not angry. You've never seen her loose. You've never seen her loose around that topic. You've never seen her open enough to even broach it in front of the whole family. So it's just, it's, it's just a very unique and special moment that contains a kind of wider variety of feeling than you would normally get from her. Yeah. And giggling. Well, and it also goes, it's also uh, a moment that, tells you something about this relationship she's working with Young Hee. Because you're right, in part, that Reagan speech serves the very long story of Elizabeth's relationship with Ronald Reagan and with America and seeing a different reaction. But it also serves the seasonal story where Elizabeth is working somebody for her job, but having a relationship with that person and getting to know that person and laughing with that person. And she comes home a little bit drunk and a little bit giddy and a little bit amused. And honestly, even Ronald Reagan can't get her goat tonight. And that says something. Right. That's what yeah. loosened her up. Yeah, yeah. Is Jung he loosened her up. That's what loosened her up. You That's, learned how to say it, right? Did I you actually learn how to say yum, it? Yum, yum. Yeah. Can you do one more? We should serve that for the rap party. <laughs> we should have I a have big to say pot it looked good. So delicious. here's the thing about how it works on set. If we have a dish like that, they really make it, right? Yeah. They really, did you they taste really it? They really made it. Oh yeah, it was delicious. Was it good? Yeah. Who makes it? Did Robert we, make it? No, like, we had a special consultant usually, come in. Yeah, usually Korean props woman. makes it, but we had a... Yeah. I, I, what <laughs> what I'm, what I'm, up to that. No. What I'm trying to wrap my head around is how is it possible that we weren't there to taste that. <laughs> that yeah, is that crazy. seems like a screw up on our part. Oh, it was right here. God, we have got to talk to our yeah. office about that. That is not <laughs> happening again. You know what? This podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting some Sunnibuji game. <laughs> That's it for this week. Thanks again to Joel Fields, Joe Weisberg, and Noah Emmerich for joining us to talk about episode 405. Come back next week to hear us talk about episode 406, The Rat, when we'll be talking with writer Masha Gessen, the American's Russian translator this season, about how the Slavophile community responds to the show. Thanks again for listening. I'm June Thomas. Our producer is Henry Malofsky. This show is part of the Panoply Network. <laughs>